Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business and Makeover Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. We've got a really good, strong show today. Uh, Tanlis Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he's going to dive into industry concerns over proposed municipal air regulations that appear to be targeting the cannabis sector. Is there some unfairness involved? It's going to be a very fascinating conversation with him. And Progressive CEO Ali Pordat and Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Focus, they're joining the BIV technology panel to dive into everything from Hootsuite's layoffs to Facebook's latest efforts to cull extremist personalities. But before we get there, a few events to tell you about. Finding the best price and buyer for your business. That event is May 8th. That is tomorrow at the Vancouver Club. We also have the Cannabis 2.0 event May 22nd at the Shangri-La Hotel. Finally, May 14th, I'm going to be moderating an expert panel examining the phenomenon of money laundering here in British Columbia and the possible policy measures to minimize its impact. We even have a great guest like Peter German. He's the author of that Money Laundering Report for BC's Attorney General. He's going to be among the experts there. For more information on that event and more, go to BIV.com slash events. That's BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and talk to Dan Sutton. And with us today, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanless Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Okay. So one thing that's been, uh, I guess, uh, bugging you a little bit, you know, we use that word, uh, uh, new Metro Vancouver air quality bylaws. Now, I, I look through this stuff and there's just this laundry list of new regulations. And you point out to me that quite a few of them, uh, we'll use the word impractical with regards to implementing them. Just to kick it off, though, uh, can you offer an example of one thing that you find to be quite impractical? Maybe explain why. Sure. So, you know, for context, the the Metro Vancouver Air Bylaw Quality Control Board, the, the people that enforce in the greater Metro Vancouver region, uh, they've identified odor concerns uh, with you know, specifically one individual greenhouse that has been a really bad perpetrator of, of these odor problems and clearly has not been adhering to the existing federal standards. So Metro Vancouver's waited in and said, you know, we're going to regulate this locally. But in doing so, uh, they've, they've proposed a variety of different obligations, uh, including limits on production capacity. I think this is one of the worst ones that we could have because the federal government has decided that allowing cannabis firms who've proven their quality assurance standards, who've proven their security standards to actually scale efficiently, this is really essential to not only meeting the increasing supply demands of Canadian cannabis, we've seen supply concerns throughout the supply chain to date, uh, but also with the reality that one day, especially British, British Columbian cannabis could become an export good. Here in the Fraser Valley, you know, we have probably now more than three or four million square feet worth of cannabis production in greenhouses. And to restrict those greenhouses in the amount they can produce, we are really potentially dampening a massive export economy uh, that would be, you know, in the, in the same context as BC wine celebrated across the world. Well, and also providing that context, it isn't necessarily to your immediate benefit so much as maybe your competitors. So why is this such an important uh, issue for you right now? 
Yeah, Tantalus Labs has had a relationship with Metro Vancouver, uh, the air bylaw enforcement, for for probably a year and a half now. And we've really been celebrated. Health Canada has celebrated our odor mitigation systems. We use a unique technology in the form of a biofilter, which has created really successful outcomes for our company. We've had very limited complaints, and and, uh, it seems as though it's difficult to smell cannabis even in our parking lot. So... Metro Vancouver recognizes this, they, they respect us and they appreciate you know, our investment there. But I, I look at this beyond our own self, self-interest and say, you know, we have a massive economic opportunity here, especially in the lower mainland where we're close to distribution channels, we're close to nationwide ability to get good BC product out to the rest of Canada. And we really need to be embracing this as a community. It's sort of interesting because Metro Vancouver does represent a sort of extra municipal, extra provincial layer of regulation. So, excuse me, it's not clear. It's not clear if they would answer to the province or to, say, the city of Vancouver or other municipalities across the lower mainland. And so I think that they are looking at cannabis as, you know, a sin good, a risk to agriculture, all these sort of neoclassical and and somewhat dated appreciations for what this can be in terms of an economic input. And I think the success of this industry and the success of our local firms is a really critical priority for all British Columbians. We're talking about millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in tax revenue over time. And in the lower mainland alone, thousands and thousands of jobs. Well, you mentioned earlier that you guys have had this relationship ongoing with them. Are they showing any signs that there could be flexibility in the future? Are you still in the midst of trying to raise some of these concerns with them? So critical to point out that these are just proposed uh, regulations. And mm-hmm. certainly that put a, a bow shot across all of the British Columbian local cannabis firms. Um, we're actually having them out for a site tour with their executive to talk more about our systems and how they function. And so I think my aspiration, my hope is that they have an instinct to balance reasonable regulations that prevent neighborhood disturbances and mitigate risk associated with community impacts with the growth and strength of this industry. So we'll see. I know that there are other companies that are are gearing up for a big legal fight. I don't know if Tantalus Labs would be involved in that legal fight, uh, but I, I really hope that we can, you know, use this olive branch of a site tour to say this is a productive agricultural business. It's something that's going to be really critical to the to the British Columbian economy. And we understand that we need sensible and reasonable regulation. Do you think, and again, I'm not trying to get you to crap on uh, Metro Vancouver or anything like that, but do you think it's almost kind of an unfair target that they're painting on this particular industry? It absolutely is colored towards cannabis specifically. I mean, in in BC, we have a lot of farmland. In the Lower Mainland uh, and, you know, across all the way up um, the Fraser Valley, we have a lot of productive farming activity. Some of that is is cattle farming. Some of it is pig farming. Some of it is is very emission-intensive wood processing. And I think a lot of the mills have closed. But nonetheless, there are impacts associated with farming. And those impacts traditionally are protected under the Farming Protection Practices Act, also known as the Right to Farm Act, where farmers actually have the right to create some noise and nuisance associated with their farming activity uh, so that they can go about their business. So these rights, uh, you know, by the 
by the interpretation of Metro Vancouver are not to be extended to cannabis companies. But unfortunately, that's just not how the act defines farming. The cultivation of any vegetable uh, plant or animal or the byproducts associated with that plant or animal uh, are protected as farming practices in this province. And so it's, it's very likely that any regulation uh, you know, specific to cannabis could be challenged on that grounds. Do you think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, as you mentioned, those are uh, very traditional farming, you know, items that you listed off there. Uh, this is not a traditional industry so much. This is still very novel. Do you think that maybe Metro Vancouver is feeling under some sort of pressure from some sort of residents because this is such a non-traditional, very new sort of system? Absolutely. And I, I know this is a contentious business. I think all cannabis entrepreneurs got into this business understanding that there would be social headwinds, that there would be uh, you know, a perspective of moral conservatism that would be opposed inherently to the production of cannabis. But unfortunately, that's just not how farming rights work. And although this may appear as though it's a, it's a novel industry, it's actually been occurring with no odor control across British Columbia for 30 or 40 years. And ultimately, the cultivation of a plant in a green house, regardless of what that plant is, is still protected under those farm rights. So beyond that, I hope that the average British Columbian and the average rural farming resident can appreciate what a massive impact this is going to have uh, to the to our ongoing economic strength as a province. And yeah, it's it's unfortunate that we're sort of at this transitionary time. But with education, with transparency, and with a real appreciation of cannabis as an agricultural activity and as farming, I think we can get through uh, these complications and, and turn it into a good news story. Well, one thing that I, I couldn't help but notice that amongst these new bylaws, though, was uh, just even rules on like how doors would close, which uh, amusing to me, but I certainly it, it's going to create pressure for people in your place right there. So I, I feel for you. Jumping over to one other topic, uh, we'll touch on this briefly, uh, new Statistics Canada data coming out, and they're showing that a lot of first-time usage is up. And we did see a spike here. And look, if you go to a jurisdiction like Colorado, they experienced a spike and it went down to regular levels. But where do you foresee this for, say, Canadian cannabis users? Is this indicative of kind of market potential, or do you think it's just people experimenting for something they never tried before? Yeah, well, in Canada, we have an unusually high cannabis use statistic. Uh, I think between sort of 15 and 17% of adult Canadians have used cannabis in the last month. And so that's, that's substantially higher than in the United States and substantially higher than in Europe. But we also, you know, about 60% of the adult population has consumed alcohol in the last month. And I think that's a statistic that a lot of cannabis CEOs point to when they look for market potential. Um, there are likely users that are trying cannabis for the first time simply because it's legal, quality assured, and regulated, and they had trepidations around consuming black market cannabis because of its lack of provenance, not knowing where it came from, and not knowing what was sprayed on it. Uh, I think that's you know overwhelmingly positive. If people want to try cannabis, they should be trying it from a trusted source. We also have new categories that are lower in psychoactivity, such as high CBD cannabis or, or cannabis that features lower order cannabinoids less so the most potent THC stuff you can possibly get, which is certainly a mainstay of most Vancouver dispensaries historically, is uh, high-potency cannabis that is sometimes unfortunately mislabeled or unbranded so that it's hard for people to discern the likelihood uh, of having a negative experience associated with that higher psychoactivity. So 
I think we will see new cannabis users. We will see cannabis users who use different cannabis historically change their habits and adapt to new habits. Uh, and this will certainly be amplified by the new um, product categories that we're going to see later on this year in the context of vaporization, uh, which many perceive as a lower risk profile than smoking, uh, edible cannabis for those that don't want to vaporize or smoke, uh, and feasibly even beverages and other concentrates that will, uh, that will allow a new class of users who really want to control their experience and reduce their risk to be able to participate in, uh, in cannabis consumption. Well, Dan, let's follow up on that in the coming weeks. I definitely want to tackle, say, edibles and beverage uh, and the market potential there with you. So uh, we'll hold off for now and uh, we'll leave our listeners wanting more. But for now, Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. Spoiler alert, the market potential is high. <laughs> I figured that, but uh, that's Dan Sutton, CEO, Tanless Labs. And stay with us, Progressa CEO, Ali Pordat, and Glue Technology Society CEO, Linda Fakas. They're going to join us next for the BIV Tech Panel. And joining us today to talk about the latest in the technology sector, it is Progressive CEO Ali Pordad and Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Fakas. Linda, Ali, thank you both for joining us on the program once again. Hey, Tyler. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're, we're a little bit behind on this, but it, it broke just as we were in here for our last segment last week. But layoffs abound at Hootsuite. It's unclear. We're hearing some media reports about 100 people, about 10% of their workforce there. I don't know, from your guys' perspective, I'll throw this out to both of you, uh, but is this an example of maybe a company contracting on a more permanent basis, indicative of where their trajectory is, or is it simply a measure to make them more viable? And again, this is from you guys looking on the outside in, make them more viable for maybe a potential sale or an initial public offering down the road. What does it look like from the outside looking in, guys? I know this is a bit of a, a big question, but what's your take? Yeah, it could be both. Um, I mean, definitely has the makings of being both. They're 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 a ten year old. How old how old is this company? I think two thousand eight is when they uh, ten yeah, years, so eleven years, years. decade. Ten yeah, years so I mean, they're they're right on the cusp of uh, of having to make a strategic move as a as a private business, whether it's uh, you know finding a, somebody to acquire them or uh, or going public. I believe they hired Goldman Sachs to explore those alternatives for them. So. Uh, I, I I would not be surprised if a recommendation came came down and said you know reduce uh, reduce the size of your workforce and uh, let's make this a viable next step. Yeah, and Goldman Sachs was looking at or Hootsuite I guess was looking at a seven hundred and fifty million dollar uh, valuation there, and they didn't get it obviously because the deals that came in the company turned down. The prices were too low, so I think it is a contraction. It's um. A crazy time in their business, isn't it, in social media yeah. with the APIs changing, Facebook changing what you're allowed to do, Twitter changing. Those have transformed their business significantly and not in a good way necessarily. So taking 10% of their workforce out um, perhaps to refocus and ensure that they can become a unicorn in the future in this space is maybe what they're thinking. But they're not a unicorn yet. And I know Ryan wants to be a $10 billion company, but he needs to contract and consolidate and 
and make a compelling story well, maybe, or maybe, go public. Well, maybe based on timing, they were a unicorn and now they're no yeah. longer a unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things, if we want to put maybe a good news spin on it, because it, it is hard to hear when people lose their jobs, though. But uh, from your perspectives, though, do you see the opportunity for some very qualified people to be hitting this talent-starved ecosystem right now? And we can get a lot of early to mid-stage companies, um, you know, diving in and uh, grabbing some talent. I love that it's mixing up the talent pool here. I think that's great news for local tech companies. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. This is a homegrown company, right? So it's a company that yeah. from the ground up was built in Vancouver. So most of the staff there are going to have experience in what we want to call startup land. And they're probably going to be attracted <clears throat> attracted to go and work for startups or yeah. earlier stage businesses just by their very nature. Uh, so I, I see that being great for uh, startups and sort of middle, you know, growth stage companies. It was like a big long job posting on Twitter this last week. Hey, everybody, Hootsuite, come over here. We're looking for people. We're looking for people. Yeah. So hashtag Hootsuite turned out to be a job listing for all the startup land local tech companies. Yeah, I saw it on LinkedIn as well. I also wonder, I mean, look, if you're part of a thousand person organization, what are the opportunities you're going to have if you join like a company that has 10, 12 people right there at that moment? Well, excitement. The, yeah, I mean, the company grew fast. Hootsuite grew fast over yeah. the last 10, 10, 11 years. So some, a lot of those staff may have been there for 40 people or 60 people or even maybe even smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they'll be better geared to go and work in earlier stage businesses than maybe somebody coming from Microsoft or Amazon. And, you know, uh, Hootsuite's been trying to run kind of an enterprise style operation. So those people might just decide, let's just head over to Amazon and I hope Google not. or Microsoft. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come on, go small. Yeah. We want to build up our ecosystem with this new wave of talent going out there. Well, I, I'm going to go big, though, and uh, I'm going to bring up the Microsoft Build Conference, which is uh, going on. It's for developers, though. And look, there's a lot of cool showcases going on. Uh, I'm definitely into anything that has to do with the HoloLens. But one thing that popped out to me, though, it's a new monitor for min- Windows. It's going to help you manage how much time you're spending on certain tasks, programs, etc. Similar to maybe that iOS monitor that I have on my own iPhone that gives me an update and everything. Linda, is this kind of the thing that we need for productivity or do you think it could be a little distracting? What's your take? I think I do not want to know how many hours I spend in Excel. That's not going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's within Office 365. I think any digital dashboard that's going to help you see what your digital habits are, where is your focus and attention going is good. Um, We are downgrading uh, our human experience, when we use these devices in addictive ways, it creates social isolation, it divides us, it's, it divides us, it's not good. So anything that's going to help us take control of these devices, and we need the big tech companies to be leading this way, we need them to not be creating apps that are addictive and annoying and sending notifications all the time, they need to make it easier for us to see what we're doing and control what they want us to do. Yeah, I'm not surprised that the the big shops like Apple, Google, and Facebook are starting to encourage people to use their phones less. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this might all come back to them in a, in a massive lawsuit in two or three, who knows, in two yeah. or three years from now, uh, people will start claiming that Facebook was addictive and you hurt my neck. Right. Uh, because I was looking at my phone <laughs> too much. And my social life. But it's yeah. a real issue. It's a real issue. And uh, and and the onus should be on them to start to get a little bit more creative on on sending the warning signals out and get, getting them in front of consumers. I mean, they didn't have a choice, did they? We had Apple do it, Google, Facebook. So Microsoft was kind of, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's go. So within Office 365 is interesting. I'm expecting there's going to be some good business productivity applications towards this digital dashboard. It's not all about... Uh, 
human wellness. I think in the Microsoft world, I see it more as a, a tool for managers and employees to figure out where their time is being spent. Most productive time for me, though, is when I'm on the airplane, though. I, I can kind of like just focus on writing. I can focus on reading. And I kind of like that. So I, I like the idea that maybe we do have more reminders going out to us saying like, hey, just take a step back off your devices every once in a while. And I think that's great for us. But mm -hmm. uh, you, you guys also mentioned, hey, say Facebook. And I, they're always in the news. Once again, uh, Facebook is now banning throngs of more of those kind of extremist personalities that we're familiar with. Uh, Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, many others here. Facebook says in a statement, we've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate regardless of ideology. Does this ring true to you guys? I, I'm just thinking about Facebook's history of what they say, always banning these people. What's your take, Ali? Yeah, that's a spin for sure from Facebook. I mean, look, at the end of the day, uh, these people have had a voice on Facebook right back before the election and many, many moons before that uh, and uh, arguably caused uh, the election to sway in Donald Trump's favor. Um, I guess where's the line, though, right? I mean, they, they've, they've cut these guys off, but are you going to... Uh, are we going to start cutting off people that are spreading that information as well? Because the biggest culprit would be Donald Trump. Are we going to shut down his Twitter account and shut down his Facebook account because he's sharing this right wing propaganda? That's right. So where do you draw the line? Yeah. And, and I would say always in that um, statement from Facebook, they had it italicized, I think, in one of the quotes I was looking right. at. It should have been in quotes kind of like always, sort of, kind of. <laughs> right. It's deja vu all over again, though. Here we go. Didn't we just talk about uh, Alex Jones and those his cohort being banned. I think this time, though, is different. Um, Facebook is taking a more human approach. They're not just relying on their algorithms to knock this stuff off, scrub it away from their network. They're scrubbing it clean. They're scrubbing the connections to these people clean, we hope, and the events that they're trying to promote. So they maybe we see a, a slightly more beefed up version 2.0 of getting this hate speech off of Facebook, maybe. Could you see Donald Trump's Twitter account, though, or Facebook account being censored or removed? No, I can't see it. I would like it perhaps to happen or for us to have some sort of flagging situation going on over there. But he sent out a tweet, uh, 197,000 people liking it, saying uh, this is freedom of speech. This is what America is about. This is wrong. So, so yeah, I it's obviously an odd situation for us to be talking about the president of the United States being one of the people that maybe needs their account scrub. But I would argue that the bigger concern is that Donald Trump is sharing Alex Jones's materials Absolutely. online, not yeah. that Alex Jones is posting them. I, I actually think Donald Trump giving Alex Jones oh. a voice is, is much, much worse. And we hope that as we go into this election cycle south of the border, that this starts to become a real conversation, not a sidebar, isn't this creepy, but a, okay, let's start talking about how to make effective change to these systems. What do you do, though, if you're Facebook and half your user base is, in the U.S. is Republican or was going to vote for Donald Trump? You, I think what you do, and I'm guessing this is what Facebook is thinking, you go end-to-end -end encryption and remove yourself from the problem. If they can't see anything that's being communicated through their platform, they don't. They no longer have any uh, need to be scrubbing it clean. So maybe that's, that, the, that's then, the solution. But then you're giving up on the mine, ability to mine the data. Yes. Yeah. But Facebook, they have been saying that, or at least Zuckerberg has been saying that he wants to take it for more of that kind of uh, digital Times square model or town square model into more of a, a digital living room. So I wonder if that's what the goal is. is in, instead of people interacting with strangers that they don't know, uh, espousing different political views, what happens if you're just talking to maybe just your your 
feed is focused on just your uncle or your mom and you're talking about like family reunions. But inevitably, there's going to be that uh, awkward Thanksgiving where everybody decides well, to talk about politics. And that crazy uncle who's yeah. talking Alex Jones speech all over the Thanksgiving dinner. I'm not sure that <laughs> solves the problem at all. Yeah. yeah. No. They're in a very tough spot. Families are weird. Yeah. Do you think that there's also potential concerns about who exactly are these human arbiters, though? How is the human person the one who has the right to decide what does or does not qualify as hate speech, though? Is that not going to create more problems for well, Facebook? Well, that was Linda's point. I think if you if you remove that human interaction entirely and just rely on machines, yeah encrypt all the data, basically decentralize the whole platform so that they can't, no one knows what, what what's going through there except whatever people want to share. And no one's, you know, then then I guess Facebook can say we're not responsible. I guess they could actually say that. At that and, you point. know, if we are imagining a world where Elizabeth Warren has her way and these these uh, companies are broken up, perhaps this data collection piece or the, the resale of this data I can see, I'm hoping I can see in the next 10 years, that's not a thing. You're mm -hmm. not allowed to collect my data and resell it. So if that is where the world is moving, then maybe Facebook's uh, kind of ahead of the game, knowing that we're not going to care as much about collecting that data. We're going to try to focus more on making money in other ways um, and selling data on or sharing it with our partners isn't a long-term strategy. So end-to-end -end encryption. I'm guess that's my guess. As <laughs> where, 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 where's all the revenue, revenue going to come from? Ads, that's the question. Just pop-up ads everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Guys, I want to thank both of you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Linda Fawkes, uh, CEO of Blue Technology Society and Ali Portad, CEO of Progressa. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends and leave five stars that it helps more people find the show. I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.